Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. John chapter 5, and go down to verse 16. John 5, verse 16. For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, The son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do, for whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son, and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. And Father, that's what we pray this morning, that you you would show us your Son in our hearts. And uh, even the greater works that you want to do in every individual life that is represented here. We pray that you would have your way this day. Anoint these lips of clay, Father. And just pray that your word would penetrate hearts. We ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Chapters 5 through 7 of John's Gospel. Note the beginning of the nation's shift in attitude towards Jesus from reservation to persecution. The Lord's first two miracles recorded in John were somewhat private in nature. The servants and his disciples knew that he had transformed the water into wine. And likewise, the servants and the nobleman's family knew that he had healed the sick son. But the miracle recorded in John chapter 5 was not only public, but it was performed on the Sabbath day. This incited the opposition of the religious leaders. We now see here the beginning of official persecution against the Savior. Look at verse 16 with me. For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. When Jesus entered the Pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem and chose to heal a superstitious lame man, he knew it would attract the attention of the religious authorities. And sure enough, after scolding the man for carrying his pallet, they hunted Jesus down and denounced him for violating the rules. Of course, the real reason was to eliminate a threat to their authority. 
They mask their true intent, however, by pretending to uphold the Sabbath. But notice, Jesus didn't avoid the surface issue. He first corrected their faulty theology, and then he addressed the real question, which is, who really owns the Sabbath? The Jews sought to slay Jesus for desecrating the Sabbath, when in actuality, they themselves were guilty of distorting the Sabbath. You see, the true Sabbath is not based upon inaction, but upon satisfaction. It's not simply about refraining from work, but upon rejoicing in work well done. When God the Father took a Sabbath break after six days of activity, he looked at all that he had made and said, it is very good. Thus, because he was satisfied with his work, he rested from his work. This allows us the glorious freedom to follow his lead and say, Lord, through your grace you have blessed my life, and now I'm going to rest. But these Jews didn't want any part of that. They would rather pat each other on the back for keeping a set of blind rules. We all have to be careful of this. Why would I say that? Because legalism is a silent killer. What I mean is like carbon monoxide. It is odorless, colorless, and tasteless. But it has the power to lull the mind into a deep sleep from which it may never emerge. So I would never recommend a person remain in a place where the poison of legalism has displaced the fresh air of grace. And here's why. One individual usually cannot rescue an organization that is permeated with legalism. In my opinion, he or she can only escape, leave that doctrine behind, and seek a fresh place of grace. Then as the dulling effects of religion wear off, he or she can go back and call others to follow. We have a responsibility to respond to legalism whenever it seeks to invade places of grace. Pastors, teachers, and leaders especially must confront legalism aggressively by taking specific action. I find in John chapter 5 three responses to graceless religion in the words and deeds of Christ. First, we must expose legalism. The truth of the gospel is the good news of God's grace received through faith. We must refute the claims of tradition, custom, or any other standard of righteousness not explicitly taught in Scripture. Scripture must be applied in such a way as to call people to celebrate the Spirit of God living within them through joyful obedience. Rather than relegating those who do not measure up to the faulty goals of human standards. Secondly, we must combat 
legalism. Now, legalism is an enemy that cannot be met with violence. However, as in any war, it must be fought with courage and conviction, recognizing that combat requires toughness. Without setting aside kindness, we must be willing to confront the legalist with his or her error. We had a couple leave here a few years ago because I wouldn't follow their version of keeping the Sabbath. I also refused to allow Calvary Chapel to go back under the law of Judaism. As far as I know, they are still trying to keep the law through the Hebrew Roots Movement. I just can't fathom it. Paul wrote the book of Galatians for the sole purpose of challenging this. I just can't fathom why anyone would want to go back under the bondage of keeping the law. In the words of the Princess Bride, it is inconceivable. Thanks for letting me get all that off my chest, by the way. Sunday's like free therapy day for me. But anyhow, one writer put it this way. Concerning how to combat those entrenched in legalism, he wrote, The only way to live with such a person as this is to be intolerant of their intolerance. If you resist him in this fashion, you can expect him to come at you like an angry bull elephant. He'll speak to you and of you like eight thunderstorms. But you must keep up the pressure because it is the only way to break his precast mindset. His rhino charge will come at you with bullying fascism. There is no fence limiting the lies he will tell to bring you down. As the Apostle Paul says, he will spy out your liberty and do everything in his power to enchain you and break your spirit. He finishes by saying, you simply must not let him overwhelm you. Every time he slaps you, hit him in return with a great big dose of love. Then I love this last line. He writes, if you keep it up, he will either repent or crucify you. That's known as clarity in the Bible. And finally, the third point is we must overcome legalism. Well, how do we do that? We do that by proclaiming grace louder, more often, in more places, and to more people than the false prophets of legalism. People only choose that type of bondage when they fear that freedom is unreachable, impossible, or unreal. Once people experience grace and can learn that it can be theirs for the receiving, legalism doesn't stand a chance. Verse 17, please. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. But Jesus answered them, at this point, as tensions is heightened and the war is at hand, 
Jesus gives an incredible, insightful, and important defense of why he could blow apart Jewish traditions, of why he was not bound by religious systems, and of why he did what he did. And yet, Jesus lived the most attractive, powerful, beautiful, joyful, wonderful life that has ever been lived. Even some honest skeptics who don't even think Jesus is God are impressed with his wisdom and his love. There was a quality about him, a joy emanating from him, a peace within him, and a love flowing through him that attracted the common people to him like moths to a flame. When he said that he had come that they might have life and have it more abundantly, no one ever challenged him saying, we sure don't see this abundant life residing in you. No. So abundant was Jesus' life that people left everything just to be near him. Hebrews goes on to say that Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness above any other person. That is, he had a gladness about him unparalleled to anyone else who has ever lived. (coughs) Truly, whoever looks at the Lord cannot help but be impressed with them. Let me ask you, is your life abundant? Because it is possible to be a Christian and miss the abundant life. Many do. In his book that I've been mentioning about spiritual armor, Puritan Arthur William Gurnall nails this. He writes, Weak faith will as surely take the Christian to heaven as strong faith. For it is impossible that the least ounce of true faith should perish since it is all incorruptible seed. But the doubting Christian will not have such a pleasant voyage there as will the believer with strong faith. Although everyone in the ship will arrive safely at home, Yet the seasick traveler will not have as comfortable a journey as the man who is healthy. The sick person misses pleasant surprises during the delightful parts of the journey, but the strong man views it all with the abundance of expectation. And while he wishes with all of his heart that he were already home, yet the joy he has shortens and sweetens his way to him. If you will allow me to uh, retranslate that into the vernacular of today, I believe what he's saying is, if someone is truly converted, the good old gospel ship will bring them home regardless of the degree of their faith. So what he is saying is, do you want to have a vibrant and robust faith so you can enjoy your journey to heaven? Or would you prefer to arrive there with puke on your breath? (laughs) This is probably why I don't get asked to write many books. (laughs) 
still, it is your privilege down here to enter into abundant life, increasingly as you permit Jesus to change your daily life. Now, one may think the secret to such attractiveness, effectiveness, and joy would be very complex. One would think that maybe Jesus had to understand esoteric mysteries and implement difficult methodologies. But such is not the case. For in the remainder of the chapter, we will see the simplicity of the secret Jesus understood that produced in him the life that was so successful and so beautiful. What was this secret? In the following verses, we will see not only why Jesus healed on the Sabbath, but the very foundational principle that governed his entire life. What was it? It was his relationship with his father. If I were to question you about the defining principle of your life, of what you assign value to, you might say, it's my career, or it's my family, or even it's my ministry. But as valid as those things might be, they are insignificant in comparison to your relationship with the father. That's all there is that eternally matters. No other agenda, no other ministry, no other vision, no other priority. Jesus was so focused on his relationship with his father that nothing else mattered. And as a result of that, everything else fell into place beautifully. His life was fruitful. His relationships were special, and his ministry was bountiful. In the following verses, we will see these statements Jesus makes about his relationship with his father. But there is more to the statement than this. For when Jesus began his discourse with the claim, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working, he was not only suggesting that the Father was working with him in all the actions he performed during his earthly life, he was also saying that the Father had been working with him and he with the Father in all their actions previously. In other words, Jesus was turning the minds of his Jewish listeners back to God's work from the beginning of creation. And he was claiming to be part of that work also. Edward Gibbon was the author of The Decline and the Fall of the Roman Empire. Gibbon wrote of the first century Christian this way. He said all religions of the world were regarded in basically three categories. By the common people as equally true, by the philosophers as equally false, and by the magistrates as equally useful. In this system, a system incidentally it seems to be reproduced in our day, all truth is relative and religious statements in particular are meaningless. Against these views, Christianity holds a unique position. Christians believe that God has spoken, that he has spoken clearly, and what he has spoken is true. John will now explain the source of a growing tension between Jesus and the religious authorities. How do you think these fine, upstanding, 
supposedly religious leaders are going to respond to such a claim. We find out in our next verse, verse 18 please. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Did I read that right? Does your Bible also say they want to kill Jesus? Can you believe how badly these people treated the Savior? I can sympathize with Peter's anger later when he cuts off a guy's ear with his sword. Sometimes you just want to slug a pagan for Jesus, don't you? Why all this viciousness, one commentator asked. Why this desire to destroy the meek and lowly Jesus? Why this murderous attempt to do away with God? The answer is here in the Sabbath question. They wanted rules. They did not want God's grace. They wanted human merit. They did not want the simplicity of a divine pardon. They wanted to do something for themselves, and they had it all worked out. The war is escalating. Tensions are now mounting. And because Jesus violated their traditions, the Jews want nothing to do with him. Jesus was messing with their religious lives, and they didn't like it one bit. So too. Some, perhaps even in our midst, have turned their back on Jesus because he violated their expectations. I'm not preaching down at you, by the way. All my sermons are filtered through me first, and these things are written as a warning. Because he is Lord, and I am not, he can sovereignly touch whoever he wants, in whatever area of lameness they are in, and say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. Therefore, if I try to instruct him, or order him like the nobleman in the preceding chapter, I will hear him say, No, you've got it wrong, Bill. I'm the Lord. God doesn't even call me Pastor Bill, just plain old generic Bill. But he reminds me, I'm the Lord, and you're the servant. Now, I want you to share your heart with me and cast all your burdens upon me, but be careful you don't start advising, demanding from, or directing me. All I'm saying is, we have to be careful not to impose rules and regulations on God and how he chooses to act in your life or mine. Here's a good thing to remember. He is the potter. We are just the clay. The phrase making himself equal with God employs a present perfect tense verb, which means Jesus was continually making himself equal with God. Regardless of what the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, or the way international declare, the fact is, those who heard Jesus knew he was claiming deity. That's why they were out to kill him. 
If Jesus Christ isn't God, somebody should tell him because he sure thinks he is. Jesus will say, I am equal with God the Father. I am the giver of life. I am the final judge over all humanity. I hold the destiny of every human in my hand. I will raise the dead. Everything I do is the will of God. Of all the great philosophers, artists, and teachers and statesmen who have ever lived, no one would dare make such claims unless he or she were either completely insane or shamelessly evil. Not unless he was indeed God in human flesh. These Jewish leaders instantly understood his claim. And they changed their accusation from that of Sabbath breaking to blasphemy. Because Jesus claimed to be God. But instead of denying their accusation, he endorsed it. Now once again, if today a man made this kind of claim, we would conclude that he was either joking or mentally disturbed. Well, Jesus was certainly not insane. And there is every evidence that he was deadly serious when he spoke these words. Now, of course, the penalty for such blasphemy was death. It is right here that the official persecution of Jesus began culminating in his crucifixion. But guess what? The Lord was not intimidated by their accusations of these religious leaders. If you check the harmony of the Gospels, you will see that after the events recorded in John chapter 5, Jesus deliberately violated the Sabbath again. He permitted his disciples to pick grain on the Sabbath, and he also healed a man with a withered hand. One commentator writes, Their dispute is no mere squabble among theologians. The issue at stake is authority. On this occasion and others to follow, Jesus confronts religious authorities on their perversion of God's law. The healing of the lame man begged the question, who owns the Sabbath? The religious authorities claimed ownership of the Sabbath by objecting to Jesus' activities the Pharisaic tradition forbids on the seventh day. Jesus responded to these religious leaders' claims in two ways. First, by refuting their self-serving definition of what work is, and then by claiming ownership of the Sabbath as being God. He began by pointing out that God had never stopped working. Now this goes to the root of the religious leader's theological presumption that said that work included any kind of activity. What does that mean? Having refuted the faulty theology of the religious leaders, Jesus equated his act of grace with God's continuing work. This was an outright claim to having ownership over the Sabbath. Because the law came from God, God cannot be condemned by the law. The Son of God was merely continuing to do what he had done as creator, had been doing since the seventh day of creation. Now this point was not lost on the religious authorities. They resented him challenging their illegitimate authority, and they rejected his claim 
of equality with God. And once again, this kick-started their plot to kill him. Verse 19. And Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Jesus began by saying, assuredly, or your translation may have truly, truly, or a double amen, meaning it is true, it is true. He then claimed equality with God, calling himself the Son of God, and referring to God as his Father. Now, while Father and Son are distinct persons, Father and Son are the same God. As such, the Father and Son are one, therefore two persons of the Trinity cannot act in opposition to one another. That would be like you going to the store and staying home at the same time. You are not two beings, but one. So you cannot do opposite things at the same time. So it is with the Father and the Son. The Son is the perfect revelation of the Father here on earth in human form. Everything he does reflects the intentions and actions of the Father. Moreover, what the Father knows, the Son knows, because they are one being of essence, therefore they share the same mind. When the Lord came to earth as a man, he submitted himself to the Father in everything. He veiled his glory and laid aside the independent exercise of his divine attributes. If you remember, in the wilderness, Satan tempted him to use his divine powers for himself, but he refused to act independently. He was totally dependent on the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit of God. When they confronted Jesus with his unlawful conduct, he simply replied that he was doing only what his Father was doing. If you think about it, in a sense, God's Sabbath rest had been broken by man's sin, and ever since the fall of man, God has been seeking lost sinners and saving them. We must not think that when Jesus claimed to be able to do nothing, except what he saw the Father doing, he was saying that he was something like a robot or a zombie who carried out the directives of the Father without thinking. This is not at all what he is saying. Christ is a person. He has a personality, including an intellect and feelings. He faced temptations, real temptations. And of course there were discouragements. Nevertheless, in nothing did he ever disobey his father. He obeyed him, and he obeyed him willingly. He always acted in perfect harmony and subordination to the father's will. Thus, his works paralleled those of the father in both their nature and extent. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. Now, obviously, only someone who was equal to the Father could do everything the Father does. Christ's statement, then, was a clear declaration of his own divinity. 
Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus was conscious of carrying out the mission that the Father had given him in the energy of the Holy Spirit. This is what he wants you to do, or rather, what he enables you to do when he saves you. What a day and a life you will have if, like Jesus, you'll simply say, The Father loves me and shows me everything necessary to navigate through this day successfully. And I know he's going to show me even greater things down the road. How simple your life will be if you find your security not in what your spouse, your job, the crowds, or society thinks of you, but only in what the Father thinks of you. And how does the Father feel about you? When you were at your most rotten and vile, God said, I will show you my love and I'm going to send my son to die for you. Now there at the end, the greater works are those that will be described in the next verses. They are first that the son gives life to whom he pleases and second that the son will be the judge of men on the father's behalf. The Word didn't become flesh just to establish a new religion. He became one of us to restore a broken relationship. He came to restore the true worship of God, which doesn't presume to earn His blessings through good deeds, but rejoices in the unmerited favor He delights to give. Unfortunately, The roots of pride run deep into our flesh. Therefore, the ability to accept grace does not come naturally, but only supernaturally. As we finish up this morning, as I prayed last week, I don't want Calvary Chapel to be a place where nice people sing nice songs and listen to a nice sermon and then go home completely unchanged. And I include myself in that number. The stakes are far too high for that. On May 7, 1915, the RMS Lusitania, a British ocean liner, was struck by a torpedo from a German submarine. The ship sank in a matter of minutes, killing 1,198 of the 1,959 passengers aboard. In her book, Lusitania, An Epic Tragedy, author Diana Preston recorded the observations of one of the passengers, Charles Laureate. He writes, As the ship was sinking, and as Laureate looked around to see those who needed life jackets, he noticed that among the crowds now pouring on deck, nearly everyone who passed by him had their life jacket on incorrectly. In his panic, one man had thrust one arm through an armhole and his head through the other. Others rushed past wearing them upside down. No one had read the neat little signs around the ship telling people how to put them on. Laureate tried to help, but some thought he was trying to take their life jackets and fled from him in terror. Preston continues, Dead and drowning people were dotting the sea like seagulls. 
Many bodies were floating upside down because people had put their life jackets on the wrong way up so that their heads were pushed under the water. You know, when I read that, I thought, in the same way, how often do we flee in terror from the presence of God who is trying to save our lives? How often do we ignore the signs in God's word and live with our life jackets on the wrong way up? I don't know where everybody is this morning in their relationship with God, but please don't leave here if you are unsure. In between bowls of chili, talk to one of us because we don't want you on that ship that went down. We want you with us on the Ark of Salvation. Because, beloved, the reign of judgment is coming. Father, we thank you that you and you alone are the Savior of mankind, that you sought us out, Father, and all we have to do is accept that gift, put on that life jacket of your blood, and we will be saved from wrath. I pray you would search every heart represented in this room, starting with mine, and reveal to us where we truly are with you. We ask in Christ's name, amen.